This is Brent White. I'm the pastor of Hampton United Methodist Church in Hampton, Georgia. And you're about to hear the sermon that I delivered on Easter Sunday, 2017. The scripture is Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 20. I think what struck me most about this passage of scripture this year as I was preparing this sermon was the angel's words to the two Marys when they arrived at the empty tomb. The angel says, Don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. Come and see where they lay him. In other words, notice what the angel doesn't say. The angel doesn't say, He's not here. He's risen. Take my word for it. No. The stone is rolled away. The angel invites them to examine the evidence for themselves, to use their senses, to use their eyes, to use their mind, to put together what happened uh, in this tomb, what happened to Jesus. Similarly, I believe God's Word gives us permission to examine the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Like any event in ancient history that we know anything about, the resurrection of Jesus Christ ought to have real historical evidence that we can point to, that we can examine. And I'm happy to say that that is indeed the case when it comes to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So I'm going to spend some time in the first half of the sermon talking about evidence that that emerges from today's scripture, and then in the second half talk about, well, the, the more important question, what does the resurrection mean for our world and for our lives? I hope you enjoy it, and now I'm going to read the scripture. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell the disciples. And behold... Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. About 25 years ago, I took a philosophy class at Georgia Tech. The subject of Christianity came up frequently in the class, not in a positive way. The professor was very skeptical, at times hostile to Christianity. At the end of the term, professors had an opportunity to hand out student evaluations. This is the opportunity for students to review the professors, right, to give them a grade. As he was handing these evaluations out, he explained that in previous quarters, previous semesters, students in his class had complained that he was anti-Christian. And he said, I I have no idea where this comes from. I I couldn't be more sympathetic with Christianity. I mean, I don't believe it's true, but how many of you believe that Christianity is true? He went on. How many of you believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead? And and I'm sitting there in this class looking around. There's 30 or 40 other students, and I know I'm not the only believer in the class, but no one said anything. No one raised a hand. No one offered an objection, including yours truly. As we think of Good Friday and Holy Thursday, I can't help but be reminded of Peter in the courtyard, and here I am doing the same thing. I I believe, I hope, I pray I would respond differently today, but this was 25 years ago. and And I believed at the time that the bodily resurrection of Jesus was just something we had to take on faith. Uh, I, I, I didn't imagine uh, that, that there was any evidence for it. It was just something the Bible said it. We're supposed to believe it. I suspect that some of you might feel the same way. If so, I want us to first notice a few things about this scripture. I'm going to be talking about some evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Keep in mind that this evidence alone is not going to bring anyone to saving faith, but 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 I want you to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a real historical event, and like any real historical event that we know about, there is good evidence for it. I want us to notice some things. First, I want us to notice what the angel tells these two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the one whom Matthew refers to as the other Mary. That's kind of a sad thing to be be called. I mean, the other Mary. We don't know anything about this other Mary, but she's not Mary Magdalene and she's not Jesus's mother. You know, Mary was the most popular female name in the first century in Palestine. So there, there are Marys everywhere. But let's notice what the angel says. He doesn't say, I know you're looking for Jesus. He is not here. He is risen. Take my word for him. That's not what he says. He says, he's not here. He is risen. 
Go and see. Go and see the place where he lay. In other words, don't take my word for it. Go and check it out for yourself. The angel wants these women to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a real historical event. The angel encourages these women to examine this evidence for themselves. And so should we. It's not just a matter of of taking the Bible's word for it, although we do believe that the Bible is God's infallible word, and we do want to take what the Bible says and and believe it. But but in this case, that's not simply the only reason. We, we, we We want to look at the evidence. In that philosophy class, I just thought, if I looked too hard at the evidence, I might... I might discover that there wasn't any. And I might lose my faith. I was afraid to look at the evidence. Well, I'm not anymore. And and I don't have time to begin to present all the evidence. But I do want to share a few things in this passage. First, this gospel, like the other three gospels, tells us that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ were all women. This is a very inconvenient fact for the early church. This is not, what I'm I'm about to say is not the way it should be, but it was just the way it is. The testimony of women in the first century was not considered reliable. In fact, in Jewish law courts, women were not allowed to testify. And we see this in the second century document. There was a Roman opponent of Christianity named Celsus. And Celsus was mocking the idea that there was a resurrection of Jesus. Why was he mocking it? Because, he said, it's a story that's, that was first told by a bunch of hysterical women. My point is... If the apostles wanted to invent a story of a resurrection, they would not tell that story this way. They would make sure that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were men like Peter and James and John, because their testimony would be far more credible. The only reason, the only reason the gospel writers tell us that the first eyewitnesses were women like Mary Magdalene and the other Mary is also is because it also happened to be true. Historians call this the principle of embarrassment. When ancient writers report things that are embarrassing to them or to their cause, that makes what they're reporting all the more credible because it goes against their own interests. So that's one small piece of evidence. But speaking of men and women, where where are all the men? Where are the the male disciples anyway? Especially the 11 who were called as apostles. They have heard Jesus predict his death and resurrection many times, on several occasions at least. Shouldn't they have rushed to that tomb on Sunday morning, the third day after Jesus' crucifixion, and eagerly 
gone to see that their Lord had been resurrected just like he said? Well, they, they should have, I suppose. But it's clear they didn't believe Jesus. Or maybe it was so far outside of the realm of possibility for them, they didn't even make sense of what Jesus was talking about when he predicted. Or maybe they, maybe they misunderstood him. Why do I say that? Because according to ancient Jewish belief, most Jews, not the Sadducees, but most Jews who were represented by the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. They believed the resurrection happened to all, all the, the righteous people at the end of history as we know it. They did not believe that resurrection ever happened to a single person sometime in the middle of history. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe how highly unlikely it was for Jesus' disciples to believe in the resurrection, consider this fact, which was uh, pointed out by New Testament scholar and ancient historian uh, N.T. Wright. He wrote a, a 900-plus page book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Changed my life. Jesus was not the only person in Palestine in the first century who claimed to be the Messiah, who had disciples, who had followers. In fact, Wright points out that there were dozens of would-be Messiahs in the hundred years leading up to Jesus, and there were dozens more in the hundred years after Jesus. All of these would-be Messiahs were crucified, were died in battle, they were killed by the Romans, like they always were, like Jesus was. They were killed. And yet, in no other instance did any of their followers claim that their leader, that their Messiah, had risen from the dead. Only Jesus and his followers, only the disciples said that Jesus had been resurrected. Why? I mean, what made these faithful Jews completely revise their understanding of resurrection to believe that Jesus himself had been bodily resurrected? What was different is that they obviously believed that Jesus was resurrected. He rose from the dead. Were they deluded? Were they suffering from some kind of mass hallucination? Were they, did they have a vision or a dream and they, they mistook that for reality? N.T. <clears throat> Wright offers this hypothetical situation involving one true would-be disciple. He writes, Suppose we go to Rome in A.D. 70 and there witness the flogging and execution of Simon bar Giora the supposed king of the Jews. Suppose we imagine a few Jewish revolutionaries three days or three weeks later. The first revolutionary says, you know, I think Simon really was the Messiah, and he still is. The others would be puzzled. Of course he isn't. The Romans got him, as they always do. If you want a Messiah, you better find another one. Ah, says the first, but I believe he's been raised from the dead. What do you mean, his friends ask. He's dead and buried. Oh no, replies the first. I believe he's been exalted to heaven. 
The others look puzzled. All the righteous martyrs are with God. Everybody knows that. Their souls are in God's hand. But that doesn't mean they've already been raised from the dead. Anyway, the resurrection will happen to all of us at the end of time, not to one person in the middle of continuing history. No, replies the first, anticipating the position that's very popular in our world today. You don't understand. I've had, a, I've had a strong sense of God's love surrounding me. I felt God forgiving me, forgiving all of us. I've had my heart strangely warmed. What's more, last night I saw Simon. He was there with me. The others interrupt now angry. We can all have visions. Plenty of people dream about recently dead friends. Sometimes it's very vivid. That doesn't mean they've been raised from the dead. It certainly doesn't mean that they're the Messiah. And if your heart has been warmed, then for goodness sake, sing a psalm, but don't make wild claims about Simon. That's how the disciples ought to have responded. Finally, notice that Matthew says that Jewish opponents of the Christian movement put forward a conspiracy theory. The disciples had stolen the body in an effort to convince people that Jesus had been resurrected. Never mind that we have evidence that the Romans posted guards outside the, 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 the tomb, and it's very difficult to get past Roman guards. They're really good at killing you. But let's ignore that for the sake of argument. We know for sure from evidence outside of Scripture that one of the first converts to Christianity was none other than James, the half-brother of Jesus. We know from evidence, from good evidence, that James himself was not originally a follower of Jesus. We see this in the Gospels. he, He and many others in his family did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah or the Son of God. James knew Jesus about as well as anyone. He certainly wouldn't have been fooled by Jesus' disciples telling him that they saw the resurrected Lord without himself seeing Jesus. He encountered the resurrected Lord, and that's what convinced him. He had no previous reason to believe it. And the same with the Apostle Paul. He was an opponent of the Christian movement. He certainly wouldn't have believed any conspiracy theory put forward by Jesus' disciples. He had to see it for himself, experience the risen Lord for himself. And he did. And we know from history, not just what's in the Bible, although that counts as a historical document, but we know from history that Paul changed. Paul changed. What caused the change? It was his encounter with the risen Lord. Besides, This has been said many times. It's a cliche, but it's still true. We know for sure that most of the apostles died on account of their faith. They died as martyrs. And some of you might think, well, big deal. Gosh, every week, unfortunately, we see people who are more than willing to die for their twisted version of their religious belief. They die as martyrs. That's true. People die as martyrs for any number of religions, whether they're true or false. But not a single one of them dies knowing that their religion is false. They all die believing that it's true. If this conspiracy theory that Matthew mentions has any basis in reality, then 
you would be asking us to believe that, that these disciples died while knowing that the story of the resurrection was a fake. I, I can't buy that. It doesn't make any sense. I could go on. The angel said, look at the evidence. So I've tried to show you some of the evidence. I'd be happy to talk with any of you later if, uh, if you have more questions. I'm, I'm very interested in this subject. My point is, I believe from the bottom of my heart that Jesus was physically, bodily resurrected. I believe that there's good historical evidence for believing this, and I believe I've encountered Jesus, not in a physical, uh, bodily way that these first disciples encountered him. We'll never get to do that on this side of the second coming. But I have experienced Jesus in a spiritual way, through the power of his Holy Spirit. So the resurrection happened. What difference does it make? After all, I believe that between 1969 and, I don't know, 1973, there were a series of moon landings and a large handful of people walked on the moon. I don't know how many. Was it a dozen? Was it fewer? Who knows? How many people walked on the moon? Doesn't matter. Several, several, several people walked on the moon. This was undoubtedly an important historical event. But you know what? I can't think of a single practical difference it makes in my life today. Except I occasionally use Velcro. And I think Velcro was invented uh, at some point uh, as part of the Apollo program. And I have drunk Tang before, that vitamin C drink, and I, I heard, I always heard that that was invented as part of the space program. Needless to say, the resurrection of Jesus Christ couldn't be more different from the moon landings or any other historical event. Because if the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, and it did, it was the most important historical event of all time. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, and it did, it ought to make all the difference in our lives. Why? Well, let's start with Jesus' own words to the, the two women in verse 10. He says, go and tell my brothers. My brothers. What an interesting word choice. Did you know that nowhere else in the Gospels before the resurrection does Jesus refer directly to these 11 disciples as his brothers? But we see it in one other place. We see it in the Gospel of John, in his account of the resurrection. He has uh, more of the conversation between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene, he, he says to Mary Magdalene there, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He doesn't refer to the disciples prior to this as his brothers. 
Now he's saying that Mary Magdalene and the other disciples are his brothers and sisters. And his father is their father too. What's changed? I mean, what's changed between Holy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning? Nothing's changed as far as the disciples are concerned. I mean, these these are the same 11 men who mostly abandoned Jesus in his hour of greatest need. John was at the cross, but he was the only one of the 12 who was there. We all know about Peter. Peter was Jesus's closest disciple, and we all know that he denied Jesus. This was a a betrayal, not as great as Judas's betrayal, but it's, it's in the same ballpark. And now these same disciples who've done nothing to change their status between Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning, now Jesus refers to them as his brothers? What's changed? What's changed is everything. When Jesus calls them his brothers, when he calls, when he implies that Mary Magdalene is his sister, he is implying that our sins are forgiven. First and foremost, the resurrection means that our sins are truly forgiven. Good Friday describes how, it describes the way in which God's forgiveness becomes possible for us. But Easter Sunday tells us that the cross was successful in accomplishing its purpose. The Apostle Paul's longest discussion of the resurrection occurs in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He talks about what it all means, and he even talks about what it means if the resurrection didn't happen. And he says these words, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and what? Does Paul say, your faith is futile, and you therefore are not going to heaven when you die? No. That's what we might expect him to say. But what he actually says is, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins. In other words, you haven't been forgiven, and you are bound for hell. For Paul, that's the main thing that's at stake. In the resurrection. But the good news is that for those of us who placed our faith in Christ, all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been nailed to the cross of Christ. Which means that the debt we owe to God because of our sins has been paid in full. Which means that God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. Which means that Christ suffered the penalty that we deserve to suffer including a God-forsaken death and hell, which means that we've been born again into God's family, which means that, that we are now God's beloved sons and daughters. More than anything, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the cross was effective. His suffering and dying on it accomplished the eternal purpose for which it was intended. Remember when Jesus was baptized... He heard that voice from heaven. It was the voice of his father. And his father said to him, This is my beloved son 
with whom I am well pleased. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. It's as if God is saying to each one of us in here, this is my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. This this is my beloved son with, with whom I'm well pleased. Christ's standing before God, his status before God, is now identically equal to our standing and our status before God. What's true of Christ in his relationship is true of us in ours. It's as if when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin because Jesus Christ was resurrected. Our sins have been wiped out. We are perfect in God's eyes because Christ has given us his righteousness. The the theological term is his righteousness has been imputed to us. It's been given to us. It's been laid over us as a free gift. What else does the resurrection of Jesus mean? It means that what Jesus says to these women applies to us, including these words, do not be afraid. Because of the resurrection, we no longer have to be afraid. I'll confess, this past week we've had some things to be afraid of. I promise you, the last three mornings when I have woken up, I've looked at my smartphone and I've gone to, uh, to the New York Times and I've looked at the headlines to make sure that North Korea is still there. And uh, that... United States, that all parts of it are still there, and that South Korea is still there, because there's been a lot of saber-rattling on the part of North Korea's ruler, and they've got a nuke or two in their country, and they've got a very unstable leader. And they're, you know, objectively speaking, that's something that could cause fear. They've been talking about an intercontinental ballistic missile. How far will it go? And if they pack that ICBM with a nuclear warhead... Could it reach the United States? I mean, it's something to think about, right? Something to be concerned about. I I pray and trust that our leaders in Washington are handling it, but uh, I don't trust that guy in North Korea. So, So we've had reasons to be afraid, but do we, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, do we need to be afraid of North Korea? No! (laughs) Some of you are nodding. No, we don't! (laughs) Because, what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid of the one who can kill your body and do no no more. Be afraid of the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. Well, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that, that, that we don't have to be afraid of that terrible potential because of our faith what Christ has done. Something else. Um, At the 9 o'clock service, we sang a song that included these words. When darkness seems to hide his face, referring to Christ's face, it's, you know, we, we face darkness in our lives, and it seems to hide Christ's face. You know, every single one of us who is a Christian will experience some of that darkness at some time in our life, maybe during a season in our life. Maybe it's doubt or it's some struggle, something we're dealing with. When it seems like Jesus is far away, 
Perhaps it feels like Jesus is nowhere to be found. Perhaps it feels like he's abandoned us. All of us Christians can experience that. If and when we do, let's follow the example of Mary Magdalene. What I mean by that is that Mary Magdalene alone, or I should say, with the other Mary, was with Jesus when he was crucified. She was with Jesus when he was buried. And she is now with Jesus on Easter morning. But imagine imagine what she was feeling for those three days or so. That feeling that Jesus was gone. He had left her. But notice it didn't change what she was going to do. She was going to do what she needed to do to be near Jesus, to be with Jesus. And so if you're going through a, a dark time in your life when it seems like Christ is hidden from you, do what Mary Magdalene does. Okay? Finally, the resurrection of Jesus means... That death is not the end. Maybe that seems obvious. That death is not the end. But this is the part of the resurrection story that hits closest to home with me. I'm sure it will for many of you. But I I can't help but think of my own father. He died 22 years ago. He died of terminal cancer. And... I don't know, for the last six weeks of his life, eight weeks... He had an IV hooked up to him. Um, He had a catheter. Uh, He couldn't, you know, go anywhere without these things attached. He had a feeding tube in his stomach. And in the last few weeks of his life, he was confined to his bed where he died. After he died, I had some really vivid dreams of my father. I mean, he was as real to me as any of you sitting out there. Now... Make no mistake, I didn't think that this was Dad's ghost or that Dad had been raised from the dead and he'd come to see me. I knew when I woke up I had been dreaming. But I promise you, in my dreams of my father in the days and weeks following his death, I always had the same reaction when I saw him. You see, when I saw him in this dream, there was no IV, there was no feeding tube, there was no catheter, he was up, he was walking around, and I remember his color was good, you know, because he he was healthy. But whenever I saw him in my dream, I said, Dad, what are you doing? Get back in bed. Where's your IV? Where's your feeding tube? Where's your catheter? You know, you're frail, you might fall, you need to lie down, conserve your energy. But I I know that God gave me the, the gift of those dreams because God wanted to remind me of what the resurrection means. It means that there will come a day when my father will be whole. He will be healthy, healthier than he ever was. On earth, and, and, and honestly, the, uh, the last year of his life, I'm, I, I had these images. He, he would cough. I remember him coughing uncontrollably. When he, when he ate, he would often get choked, and it was very uncomfortable. He was coughing, and, and, 
and I and my my uh, my heart went out to him, and, and that's the father that I that I saw struggling for so many weeks and months prior to his death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that my dad's going to be okay, and your loved ones are going to be okay, and we are going to be okay. We are going to be physically whole. We're going to have bodies that aren't capable of suffering from terrible diseases like cancer or any other kind of evil thing that comes our way, we're going to be okay. And that's because of what happened on that first Easter Sunday morning. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Will you say it? Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll join us for worship at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 and a traditional service at 11.